Before we get going, I wanted to let you know that Z and I are going to be talking at the Intelligent Speech Conference on June 25th. Uh, it's an all-day online conference. Uh, you can sign up for it at intelligencespeechconference.com, and you can get a discount by using the code BRIT, B-R-I-T, at the checkout. There's a whole bunch of podcasters who are going to be speaking on a whole variety of topics. There are open panels, there are question and answer sessions, all kinds of stuff, and Z and I are going to be giving the closing keynote speech. So if you'd like to hear that, Go sign up at intelligencespeechconference.com. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 394, Godwinson's Revenge. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now, members are listening to a Shop Talk episode where Z and I answer, honestly, some pretty personal questions, and we go into some of the complaints that have been leveled against us over the years. And you can get instant access to that episode and all the previous members' episodes by signing up for membership at the British History Podcast for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to John, Mary, and Dimitri for signing up already. The Battle of Hastings had been brutal, even for the Normans. That invading army had suffered terrible losses. You see, the English and French forces appear to have been matched in terms of raw numbers, which is never a good situation for any army, because it all but guarantees heavy casualties. Making matters worse for the Normans, they were forced to fight in a way that they weren't used to, and frankly, they weren't prepared for. And all of this was mostly William's fault. Invading in the fall meant he had little to no hope for reinforcements due to the weather. And deciding to lure Harold into battle by seizing the autumn harvest, burning the farming villages, and slitting the throats of the farmers meant that now the southern meant that now the southern downs no longer held the food that would have sustained the French knights and their horses in the event of a siege. And so that meant that when Harold arrived, William and his men had no choice but to fight in the open, and roughly in the manner of Harold's choosing, because doing anything else would have resulted in a siege and death by starvation. William's plan to lure Harold out had been audacious but it came with a heavy price. And the costs of that strategy were immediately apparent. And the contemporary Norman accounts make no bones about it. William's army had been put through the ringer. The English had killed a lot of the invading fighters during that battle. And then they kept on killing them in ambushes and traps as they made their retreat. Now granted, the English lost a lot in this fight as well. But they were also in England, so, you know, reinforcements were possible. Not so much for the French. And military historians estimate that in the immediate aftermath of the Battle of Hastings, as much as a third of the Norman army had been taken out of the fight, either having been wounded or just killed outright. And that was after the about 10% of William's army, which had already been lost either at sea or due to desertion, you know, following all those shipwrecks. So the Norman army was in tatters, but here they were in possession of the field, 
they had won the battle, which meant that they did actually have the upper hand. Despite the bad situation here, every roll of the dice had gone William's way. And while there are disagreements over who precisely killed King Harold Godwinson, and whether it was a deliberate assassination of the command center of the English army or just a random occurrence on the battlefield, the fact remains that the King of England lay dead. Not only that, but by now William would have been aware that Tostig, Leofwina, Gerth, and even King Harold Hadrada of Norway were also dead. When William had started out on this venture, he had been only one of many potential claimants to the English throne. But now, the only living son of Godwin was rotting away across the channel in a Norman dungeon that William controlled. And that left only one other serious rival to William's ambitions. A 14-year-old named Edgar Atheling. Now, granted, Edgar wasn't the only potential claimant. Across the North Sea was King Swain Estrithson of Denmark, and he also had a claim on England. In fact, it was one of the stronger claims, as he was the nephew of King Canute the Great, as well as the cousin of King Harold Godwinson. But he was also all the way up in Denmark. And he'd said earlier this year when talking to Tostig that he wasn't interested in pressing his claim. That William, which meant that William was now the only grown-up in the kingdom with a serious claim. And, you know, serious is doing a lot of heavy lifting there. It was a pretty spurious claim. But he did have an army, and that did bolster that claim. So things for William had really turned around. This was just a crazy couple of weeks. However, looking over his army in the aftermath of Hastings, it was probably starting to look like his victory was also a Pyrrhic one. Now, of course, William wouldn't have known who King Paris was, because learning is for nerds. But if William did know the story of King Paris and his famous Pyrrhic victory, he may have noticed a few similarities. Because here the Normans were, in enemy territory, they were down about a third of their fighters, and due to the weather and the still intact English fleet, they had no way to get reinforcements. Furthermore, he could have very well just stay in Hastings. Despite the losses, he still had a lot of men and horses there, which meant that he needed a lot of food. Food that the charred fields and villages of the region could no longer provide. Complicating matters was the fact that if he wanted to go to London, which he certainly did, all the direct routes to that city went straight through the Weald. And the last time his men went into the Weald, they didn't return. And here's the thing about William's education. He wouldn't have known about King Paris. He wouldn't have been able to read or write. Because instead, he was raised and educated in a culture that was ruthless and zero-sum and focused on violence. It was a culture that was a disaster for Europe. But while that education was a miserable failure in most ways, it was actually quite useful if your goal was to ruthlessly gain victory at any cost through violence, which was absolutely William's goal. So... The Normans, despite their losses, were still kind of in their element here. William just needed a new plan. 
And William's nightly education would have told him that when you're on conquest and dealing with ambushes, you don't send your army into fucking Fangorn Forest. So advancing directly on London was straight out. And given the state of his army, it was also clear that he needed to give his men a chance to rest and recuperate. So despite their dwindling resources, after raiding New Romney as a punishment for fighting back, William returned to Hastings and he did something strange. He waited. Specifically, he was waiting for the English nobility to send their messengers, announcing their submission to his rule. Because surely, after the loss of their king, his brothers, large numbers of their lesser nobles, and God knows how many Huskarls and Ferdsmen, surely after that, messengers carrying submissions must have been on the way. And actually, he was half right. The English were sending messengers. Riders were going out all over the kingdom, and they were telling everyone, from thanes through earls, of what had happened at Hastings, of the French invasion, of the devastation of the English army, of the death of King Harold Godwinson and his brothers. So yes, messengers were definitely being sent. Because a new king of England needed to be selected, and that meant that the Witan had to convene. Because in England, it's the Witan that selects the king, not some secret promise or a lucky blow on the battlefield. And so the English were summoning the leaders of the most powerful families of the kingdom to attend to Watanagamot in London. And there it would be they, not some minor Norman noble, who would proclaim a new king of England. But of course, that minor Norman noble was still leading an invasion in the south, so when you come to London, your lordship, can you bring a few troops with you? Or preferably all your troops? So that's what the English were up to. Meanwhile, back in Hastings, Duke William was waiting for word of the English response. Because he knew that the death of King Harold wasn't the end of it. He knew that one of two things would have to happen next. Either English messengers would arrive and offer him their submission or another army would be raised and they would attack his army, which was now a much smaller army filled with bloodied and battered mercs. And he didn't know which one it would be, but it had to be one of those two. So all he could do is wait. And consequently, the safest place for him to be was at Hastings, because he had those ditches and palisades that would keep him safe. And he was also nice and close to the channel, which left open the possibility that he might be able to get some reinforcements if they squeezed past the English fleet. Or at the very least, he might be able to make a quick getaway if things got really bad. Furthermore, by staying at Hastings, his future vassals would be able to easily find him and offer their fealty. So, he waited. Back in London, the leading men of the city, as well as a variety of southern nobles who had not met a final fate at Hastings, whether by managing to get away or just being lucky enough to have not been there in the first place, joined an assortment of southern churchmen, and they gathered to handle the matter of who would be the next king of England. But not everyone was present yet. And critically, two of the most powerful eldermen in England had not yet arrived. The brothers Morcar and Edwin. And they would certainly want to have their say. And historically, the North does not take kindly to being kept out of major decisions. 
So with voting not yet an option, those already in attendance likely passed the time working out who the likely candidates would be. Do you think Edgar is going to put himself up? I mean, he's just a kid from Hungary, but he is on the line of succession. And let's be honest, youth and inexperience isn't always bad. After all, that might mean he's more open to, you know, our advice. Or what about Earl Edwin or his brother Morcar? Neither of them are from the House of Wessex, but really, does that even matter anymore? And besides, they come from an old Mercian dynasty. So maybe the Mercian brothers could do what the House of Godwin couldn't. Or at the very least, they seem like they're rich enough to reward anyone for supporting them. So as the nobles trickled into England, the politicking and strategizing must have grown more urgent and tense. Meanwhile, back in Hastings, William was still waiting on those submissions. Or maybe a battle. Whichever. It was coming any day now. Any day now. Where the hell were they? None of the scouts were reporting an army advancing on Hastings. And so far, no one was submitting to him either. What were these Englishmen doing? Were they planning to wait him out? Because honestly, that might work. They were absolutely going to run out of food here before much longer, especially if Sir Ralph keeps stuffing his face like that. And considering that it was William's orders that had resulted in the coming food crisis, if he didn't find a way to fix it, he could well find himself on the wrong end of a Norman sword. So, even though they were in unfamiliar territory that was populated by people who were gifted at laying ambushes, William had to contend with the fact that he was still surrounded by knights. And they weren't the kind of people who would seek nonviolent solutions to any situation, especially when they're hangry. So despite the danger, William seems to have decided that his best course of action was to order his men to saddle up to march east towards Dover. At least out there, they probably had some food. But they also needed to move out in the open because obviously they couldn't go into the woods. That was death. But moving out in the open also meant that they'd need to move quickly and carefully because these English could be anywhere. Literally every hill and every cluster of trees could hide an English military force. With every step they took, they had to wonder whether Earl Waltheof or any of the other English leaders were lying in wait for William and his men to fall into their trap. They had to be incredibly careful. Meanwhile, in London, the elite of England, those who would be tasked to, you know, set up those ambushes, well, they were still waiting on everyone to show up. But no worries. There was still plenty to keep them occupied. A Watanagamon is a big deal, after all. And so the nobles who were assembling were likely keeping busy by currying favor, forming alliances, maybe trying to work out a few marriage deals, and also trying to figure out which of these candidates would best serve them. Not England, necessarily, but, you know, serve their own personal interests. Because not all kings are created equal. Do you want someone who could be swayed to your own political and financial goals? Do you want someone from an old dynasty that the general public would support? Do you want someone from a newer dynasty that holds a lot of wealth and power 
and might be able to reward you for your support. Do you want someone that will finally get God to stop being mad at the English? There are a lot of things here to consider, and you might be wondering if they were looking for military experience, you know, given all those friggin' soldiers and Hastings. But I'm not sure if that was on the mind of many of the members of the Witan. It certainly doesn't seem like it was. First of all, because pretty much everyone on the official line of succession was a teenager or younger. And second of all, because even the scions of the most powerful dynasties who weren't on the line of succession were still probably only about 20 years old or younger. So not exactly a lot of military experience to be found among the candidates. If you wanted military experience, you'd have to start looking outside the most powerful dynasties in England. And if you start promoting people outside of the dynasties that control the Witan, what even is the point of having a Witan? So things in London were heating up. And the leadership who had assembled were likely hard at work trying to solve the crisis of which teenager would get a fancy hat. Meanwhile, William and his Norman army were thundering down an old Roman road. They went past Rye Harbor, Benenden, Tenterden, Ashford. Horses and men were advancing relentlessly towards the coastal town of Dover. A town that was perilously close to the lands of William's allies, and a town that already had some history with the French. If you recall, it was here, about a decade and a half earlier, that Count Eustace of Boulogne and his men got into a fight with the citizens of Dover. This conflict triggered a series of events that culminated in a near civil war between King Edward, who supported Eustace, and Earl Godwin, who supported the people of Dover. And ultimately, it ended in cementing the House of Godwin as the most powerful dynasty in the land. But now that same dynasty, who had long protected this town, was all but wiped out. Making matters worse, we know that Eustace had come to England with William, and that he had been present at Hastings. So it's possible that he was with William on this ride as well, though also maybe not. You might recall that he was terribly injured in that night battle at the Malfoss. But either way, for the people of Dover, they were once again facing down a French military force looking to violently settle a score between nobles. And once again, they were going to have to handle this situation on their own. And you can bet that news of what happened at Hastings and what had happened to New Romney had already reached Dover. The people of Dover knew what they were up against. They knew better than most, in fact. And unlike many towns in southern England, Dover was fortified. Now, Poitiers tells us that the Normans had heard that Dover was impregnable. And perhaps that was why they were going there. The castle walls, supplemented by the steep cliff upon which it sat, created a sheer face that would be difficult to impossible to climb. And at the back of the castle was nothing but open ocean. It was an ideal place for the Normans to dig in and prepare for the English counterattack that they were certain was coming. It was perfect. And it probably even had a well-stocked larder. There was just one small issue. They needed to get in first. Meanwhile, in London, the assembled nobility were still waiting for all the lords to arrive. England's big, after all. And sure, 
Harold and his men had managed to go from London to York in a matter of a few days. But that was Harold, and people were already recasting his speed as a mistake. So it seems like the prevailing wisdom was that slow and steady wins the race. Because it really was taking forever for everyone to show up. And at this point, you might be saying, well, okay, but who was going out into the field to deal with William at Dover? Or, you know, to take on the troops that he left behind at Hastings? Was the English fleet at least attacking the Norman ships in the harbor? What exactly was the English military response? Well, at this point, it doesn't look like there was one. It doesn't appear that the assembled English nobility undertook any sort of campaign during this period, at least not a military one. And if they were mustering soldiers in London during this period, it appears they kept them there, probably for their own protection. At best, the nobles were waiting for a king to be selected before doing anything, perhaps because they felt that only a king would be able to muster a new fird large enough to respond. Or maybe they were waiting to see who the new king would be before deciding if they really wanted to oppose this Norman claimant. It's even possible that some of them were quietly holding back, with an eye to supporting one of the potential Scandinavian claimants. After all, some of these nobles had dynastic links to those royal Scandinavian lines. There's all kinds of reasons why the nobility might have felt it suited their interests to sit on their hands. But unfortunately, we're not told which one it was. All we know is that as William and his men advanced, the leadership that was tasked with responding to this threat focused instead on political matters that would only matter if they and the system that they relied upon survived the threat. As for that actual threat, well, that would have to wait. Politics first, which must have been completely maddening for the common folk. You know, the everyday people who had no say in any of this and just had to hope that their leaders would find a reason to actually do something about this existential threat that was looming over everyone. You know, the kind of thing that never happens in our modern day. Back in Dover, the townsfolk could see William and his Normans on the horizon. And there were a lot of them. And Dover might be fortified but fortifications mostly are there to hold off an invading force long enough for reinforcements to arrive. But where would Dover get reinforcements from? The king was dead. His brothers were dead. So who would ride to the rescue? The Godwinsons, the historic protectors of Dover, were pretty much gone. I mean, I guess there was Queen Edith who held Winchester, but was she really going to empty out her city to ride to the rescue of a town on the far end of Kent? Probably not. Dover stood alone. And facing the very real possibility of starvation during a siege, followed certainly by executions when the walls finally fell, the city leaders of Dover decided that the best path forward would be surrender. If they gave the Normans no resistance, maybe their new overlord would allow them to continue to live in peace. You know, minus all the food in the larder. So, a messenger was sent out of the castle, carrying word of their unconditional surrender to the man who claimed that he was their rightful king, selected by both God and Edward the Confessor. Dover was standing down. This would be William's territory now. 
and we're told in response, the Normans set the town and the castle on fire. We're given this story from Poitiers himself, William's hype man. And he goes on to say that it wasn't long before the majority of the castle was fully engulfed in flames. Now, Poitiers is quick to add that this only happened because the Normans were out there searching for loot, which sounds like complete bullshit. Looting and arson are two very different things. You don't steal a TV and then suddenly the house burst into flames. You either steal the TV and leave or you steal the TV and then light the house on fire because you wanted to. And I get that things were different back then, but I find it very hard to believe that the castle walls accidentally caught fire because Sir Stefan stole Unferth's cow. But this sort of thing is going to be a theme that we'll see again and again in the record. The Normans will piss on the English, and then Poitiers will claim that it's raining. And straining credibility even further, Poitiers tries to hint that this attack on a surrendered population was against William's wishes. In fact, Poitiers tells us that William was aghast that his knights did this, and that the Duke would have loved to punish his men for it, but unfortunately, there were simply too many of them involved, and they were far too base to identify. So yeah, Poitiers claimed that the hooligans who burned Dover to the ground were too numerous and too poor for William to identify. Because apparently, anyone without a title looks the same to old Bill. And here's the thing. We've talked quite a bit about the organization of the Norman army and how it operated in divisions and how there were captains, commanders, what have you. So the idea that there is a huge portion of William's army that spread out into Dover and set it on fire while stealing, I assume, a cow and some brooches, and then literally none of their superior officers were able to identify any of the responsible parties, well, that's just ridiculous. So instead, we're left with two possibilities. First, Dover was burned on William's orders which honestly is totally in keeping with their behavior since they'd landed in England. I mean, it's not like pillaging and burning was taboo for these guys. But maybe upon realizing that they were burning down a fortress that William would have liked to use, he suddenly got buyer's remorse. And then when folks began to whisper about how awful it was that William burned down a town that had surrendered to him, Poitiers decided to do a bit of PR and blamed it on the one group that no one really cared about the poor. So that's possibility one. Possibility two is that the army was growing angry over the dwindling food supplies, and William was rapidly losing control of them as a result. In that case, it could be that in Dover, they basically mutinied and decided on their own to raid and burn Dover, just as they had done in Hastings and everywhere else they'd gone in England. And that would have put William in a position where he had no choice but to accept what happened. Because if he tried to punish them, then his whole army might turn against him. So that's the other possibility. And I don't know which one it is, but I am certain that it wasn't a cattle wrestling incident by a bunch of baseborn randos that suddenly went wrong. It's just ridiculous. But however it happened, Dover was a defensible location on the coast. And William, at this point really needed it because the English were certain to counterattack. So he didn't just need a fig leaf to explain what happened here. 
He also needed a way to smooth things over with these people, since he was planning on occupying their town. So Poitiers tells us that William promised to reimburse them for their losses. But, you know, keep in mind that the money that he pledged would have come from all the loot that they took from the towns and villages that surrounded Hastings, as well as from Romney, and also probably from Dover itself. It wasn't like William crossed the channel with his piggy bank. So even if the English actually got the payment that they were promised, they were getting paid with their own money. But after that, Poitiers gets to what William actually wanted, the fortifications. We're told that William took Dover Castle and began to repair and refortify it. And the Norman army stayed there for eight days. But after a little bit, some of the Normans began to get a little uncomfortable. Is Dover normally hot at this time of the year? Because it feels really hot here. Wait, no. Cold. Yeah, definitely cold. Or, no, it's actually hot again. Is, is anyone else getting sweaty? I'm getting really sweaty. And then the cramping started. And then it escalated. Rather suddenly, or one might even say, explosively. A huge portion of the army came down with dysentery. Because this was a medieval conquest. And in a medieval conquest, it's tradition to carry out appalling acts of violence and then take a little me time to shit blood and sweat through your armor. So things in the Norman army were getting a bit messy here. And Poitiers blames it on the English food and drink. Because even in the 11th century, the French are going to talk shit about English food. And I found one historian argue rather generously that this might have been the first time that they were drinking English water because they'd made the crossing with wine. And so he believed that they'd been drinking that the whole time, which I find highly unlikely. I'll grant you that we do know that William had wine with him on the crossing. But as for everyone else, it seems quite clear that the army didn't bring a whole lot of food or drink along with them. Their plan was to loot and pillage their way through this. So that's problem number one with this argument. Problem number two is that even weak wine will still dehydrate you if you're drinking it exclusively for nearly a month straight. Problem number three is the sheer logistics of the thing. I planned a wedding. Getting enough wine for 100 people is bad, but for 10,000? That's crazy. And that's just for one party. Can you imagine how much wine you would need to have 10,000 men use it as their sole source of hydration for nearly a month? Where was all this wine coming from? Unless Crowhurst was an industrial strength vineyard, the math on this seems a bit off. And finally, you have the issue of timing. It's just plain weird that suddenly, as they reached Dover, this would have been their first experience with English water. So at least for me, none of this makes any sense. And I'm relatively certain that the French had been eating English food, which, of course, they had stolen. We have confirmation of that. And they're also drinking English water provided by the wells that, you know, they stole. And the accounts, including even the biotapestry, seem to indicate that this had been going on since day one of the invasion. But that leaves the question... Why was William's army suddenly queuing up for the loo in large numbers as soon as they took Dover? Well, William did just cram a ton of horses and knights into a castle that they themselves had damaged by lighting it on fire when they arrived. 
So quarters would have been pretty tight. And that meant that knights and horses were sharing spaces and doing all the things that knights and horses do. Eating, drinking, shitting. All probably in about the same place. So that's probably how this actually happened. But personally, I like to think that as the Normans began setting the town and castle on fire, some patriotic man of Kent decided to get some payback. And he leaned over the well and pinched off a quick one before hightailing it out of the castle. Of course, we'll never know, but I really like to imagine that's how it went down. But whether it was the accommodations or some heroic citizen of Dover leaving William the medieval version of an upper decker, the fact was that the Norman army was up to its neck in it now. And Poitiers tells us that this outbreak was so severe that many of them were on the edge of death. <laughs> Meanwhile, back in London, the English court was dealing with its own sense of urgency. Archbishop Stigand, Edgar Atheling, Earl Morcar, Earl Edwin, Archbishop Eldred, and a whole variety of thanes and other nobles had at last finally arrived. Everyone who was anyone was now in London. Well, except all the dead nobles. And there were a lot of dead nobles. Which is why, with the exception of the churchmen, almost every man present had been considered a boy only a short while earlier. A lot of wispy mustaches in that room. But they didn't let that get in the way of doing their duty. And rather than an easy open and shut case for succession... There was quite a debate. The fact was that the way that Harold had risen to the throne had put the future of the crown in play. Virtually anyone with a significant amount of power in England could now make an argument that they should be the next king. And that's exactly what Earls Edwin and Morcar did. As the rulers of nearly half of England and as veterans of the Battle of Fulford Gate, they felt that the crown should definitely go to one of them. And it could be argued that they were well-situated to deal with this Norman menace, considering their experience and also the fact that they still had soldiers in reserve, as their armies hadn't been present at Hastings. Though I'm sure that more than a few of the members of the Witten took note that had their armies actually been present at Hastings, that battle might have gone very differently. And as for Fulford Gate... The English were slaughtered at that battle. So, when you think about it, not exactly the strongest of candidates. And that's before you get to the fact that they weren't on the line of succession. And also the fact that the Northumbrians were openly displeased with Earl Morcar's rule. And they were also young. I mean, not the youngest here, but still pretty goddamn young. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if there were nobles there who pointed out that actually this should be pretty easy to solve because King Harold Godwinson had kids, you know, unlike Edward. And actually, he had a bunch of sons. And while they were also likely teenagers, most everyone else of rank in this thing was a teen as well. So why should that matter? And typically, the son of the previous king is the next king. Though it appears they had no military experience, no leadership experience, and they also had the downside of hailing from a family that was bitterly hated by many of the dynasties who now made up the Witan, since many of the allies of the House of Godwinson had met their end at Hastings. Now, if there were some clever people in the room, 
I have to assume that following his service at Hastings and his successful ambush in the Weald, Earl Waltheof may have been considered as another potential candidate. I mean, he was experienced. He was a leader. He was also one of the oldest, if not the oldest, of the potential candidates there. But he was also from an outside dynasty with little to no political power outside of the North. And of course, there were also those who would have advanced young Edgar Atheling, the grandson of King Edmund Ironsides. Now, Edgar was only about 14 years old, and he'd only been in England since 1057. But he was from the House of Wessex. And that, it seems, was of particular interest to the citizens of London, as well as the sailors who crewed the English ships. John of Worcester tells us that those two groups in particular wanted the Witan to proclaim Edgar King. Now, it's quite possible that John got this right, but the commoners of England just really wanted this damn Witan to come to an end quickly, because things out there were getting pretty bad. And John tells us that as this august body was assembled and began to debate who would be the next king of England, William and his Normans were murdering English subjects in vast numbers, and they were doing it with complete impunity. We're told that he laid waste to the South, all while their leaders dithered over who would wear the crown. Meanwhile, in Dover, William had hit a wall. He couldn't afford to wait any longer. His men would just have to suck it up and prepare to ride. Because these English were not submitting to him. And the only explanation for that was that they must have been raising an army to fight him. Which meant that his only chance for success, or even survival at this point, would be to swiftly destroy their morale and crush any opposition to his rule before the English army found him and met him in the field. So after eight gut-wrenching days in Dover, the Norman army departed the town. Well, those who were able to ride departed. Those who were too sick to march were left behind and instructed to hold the castle for their duke. Though my guess is that most of what they would be holding at this point would be their knees. And off in the distance, William and what remained of his army were riding hard inland for the spiritual heart of the south, Canterbury. It was only about an 18-mile journey, and William's army was on horseback. So even at a trot, and they were definitely going to trot, William's army could have reached Canterbury within an hour or two. And that's including the extra time that Sir Stefan would have needed to pull his horse to the side of the road to, you know, handle something. A few things. And so it wasn't long before William and his men appeared on the horizon and Canterbury almost certainly would have received word of what had become of Hastings, Romney, Dover, Ashburnham, Crowhurst, Bexhill, Wilton, Filsham, Icklesham, Gessling, and many others. Because William and his horsemen didn't come to England alone. They brought with them war, famine, death, and now even pestilence. And in this religious city, I'm betting that fact wasn't lost on the assembled churchmen. William was bringing hell to England. And apparently, Milton got it wrong. The holy men decided that actually, it's better to serve in hell than be sent to heaven. Because the leading men of Canterbury approached the Norman army and offered their surrender, along with any hostages that the duke might require. 
And at about this point, William probably was beginning to wonder what the hell was wrong with English weather. Always going so hot and cold. And humid. God, he'd never sweat this much in his life. And as the Norman army prepared to take possession of Canterbury, within the city, people, quote, began to tremble and realizing that resistance would be followed by utter ruin, hastened to submit in order to avoid destruction, end quote. And within William, something else was beginning to tremble and threaten destruction. Back in London, the Witan was finally ready to move on this crisis. They might disagree on a lot of things, but they all agreed that they didn't want a Norman king. So they finally took action. On the urging of Archbishop Stigand, a coalition had formed to support Edgar Atheling's claim. The Archbishop had a group of earls who swore that if Edgar was crowned king, they would immediately march under his banner and bring war to William. Give the people what they want. And what they wanted was decisive action on this existential threat. And apparently, they would get it, all for the low, low cost of voting for Edgar. So at last, we had a consensus candidate. And so Stigand secured the support of a huge chunk of the Witan. Even Edwin and Morcar supported him, despite their own aspirations. England would be ruled by King Edgar the Atheling. And with that matter settled, Edwin and Morcar sprung into action. And they told their sister, the Dowager Queen Edith, to leave London and relocate to Chester. And that's all they did. I get the sense that they might have been a little more annoyed about getting passed over than they were letting on during the debate. But the rest of the earls were still going to get an army together and march on Canterbury, right? Hey guys, you're going to make good on that promise to fight William, aren't you? Guys? Meanwhile, William and his army took up residence in a location that's referred to as the Broken Tower. And no one's entirely sure where that was. But it was either in or very near to Canterbury. And they really would have needed that camp. Because William was shitting his brains out. And as they couldn't move when the Duke was this sick, that meant that the cat and mouse game was over. The English army was now certain to find them. So they would need to prepare for the attack. It was inevitable. I mean, no kingdom would let this kind of invasion stand without some form of resistance. So they needed defenses. And even a broken tower could work if it's prepared properly. They'd also need food and drink, which, of course, they'd take from the local Englishmen by force if necessary. And you know what? Considering the state that the Duke was in, they'd probably need some toilet paper as well. Or, you know, whatever campaigning Normans use for toilet paper. Peasants, maybe? The tears of orphan children? Baby swaddles? Whatever it was, William and his men were going to need a lot of it. Because, man... This is getting bad. And at this point, I sincerely hope that this dysentery outbreak was a final f*** you by one of the men of Kent as they left Dover Castle. Because that would make it one of the funniest uses of biological warfare ever. 
it would also make it one of the more effective elements of the English resistance in the immediate aftermath of Hastings. Because those aristocrats, they don't seem like they're in much of a hurry. But hey, at least something was slowing down the Norman conquest. Way to go, dude from Dover. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on Reddit, and you can find links to that community and all our other communities by going to the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>